month or so, maybe a little bit more. And we had to do the last six commandments fairly quickly and through our online uh, platforms. Thankfully, we were able to do the fourth commandment for two services. Um, and I, I thank you all for allowing me to preach on that important commandment and, and for it to be expounded by giving it the time it needed. But now that we are starting to progress a little bit back to normalcy, and I mean a little bit, uh, I want us to be sure to reiterate what we've seen throughout uh, this series on the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to rehash the particulars of each commandment, uh, but I do want to summarize and put a finer point on what we've seen over the past few months. At the beginning of the series, we looked at the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6, and we will be going back to it, Deuteronomy 6, uh, for our passage this morning, and to an extent this evening. In Christian talk, we speak of the Ten Commandments being the laws for loving God and loving neighbor. These two categories, love for God and love for neighbor, will be our focus this Lord's Day. But for this morning, we will look specifically at the love for God. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. Our main focus will be on verse 5, but we will begin reading at verse 4 at the end of verse 9. And to the end of verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we come before you now. We ask that you would uh, indeed hear uh, Pastor Wynn's prayer, that you would hide me behind the cross, that I would be able to effectively minister this word to your people that we might know and be refreshed in the love of God that would cause us to know our duty and delight to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Help us this day, we pray. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So the way that we're going to approach these two broad categories, love for God and love for neighbor, is by looking at the domains of personhood that Moses provides for us in Deuteronomy 6. In verse 5, we see three nouns that are ascribed to man. We see the heart, the soul, and the might. Now, you are probably familiar, I would imagine, with other areas of the Bible that teaches what we are as human image bearers. We should all be familiar with the biblical doctrine that humanity is made up of two basic parts— the body, and the soul. We have both a material, physical aspect of our humanity, our bodies, and we have an immaterial, spiritual aspect of our humanity, what we call the soul, sometimes called the spirit. These are standard truths that we should affirm. But with that said, this text is not giving an exposition on the constitutional nature of man. 
Often when preachers come to this text, they explain verse 5 in this way. We have a heart part, we have a soul part, and we have a might part of us that we are to love God with. And we're to love God with each of those parts. But that doesn't quite account for what we get in the great Shema. Moses is thinking about how we as God's people love God in the various domains of our personhood. To put an image in our head, to help us understand what I mean by the domains of personhood, I want us to have this image. We have three concentric circles, or you can think of a three-tier fountain, right? Just view upside down, but the fountain imagery is helpful. These three circle or tiers extend to the domains of our personhood, the center being our heart, the next being our soul, and the last being our might. So in Moses' eyes, we are to love God with the totality of our person, which begins in our hearts, then with our souls, and then with our might. Just as the fountain overflows from the center outward, our love for God begins in the heart, flows into our souls, and fills our might. That picture is going to be with us. You better have that in your head now. So with this fountain picture in view, I want us to begin thinking upon the first four of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are commonly understood as the commands that concern our duty to love our God, our love for God. I hope that I've shown throughout our study, and this, this, these are some, while, uh, some time back, back in January, uh, that, that the love of God motivates all of our obedience and devotion to His commandments. Commandments 1 through 10, not just the first four. But I do believe the division between love for God, the first four, and the love for neighbor, the last six, is helpful. Following our fountain imagery of love, I want to summarize what we've seen the past few months by seeing that Christians are to love God with their hearts overflowing into their souls and their souls overflowing into their mind. And so our three points for today will illustrate what our love for God should look like according to Deuteronomy 6. So here are our three points if you're a note taker, of course. Our love for God should be characterized by affection filled, life encompassing, and community impacting love. Our love, should, our love for God should be characterized by an affection filled, life encompassing, and community, community impacting love for God. It's a mouthful to say, but I hope that I can explain it. So first, affection-filled. Our love for God should be affection-filled. In verse 6, Moses states this. If you'll look there with me in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. To begin, we are looking at the heart of man as it is to be filled with affections. In the biblical view, one's heart, that that noun relates to all that is internal. One's desires, our emotions, our attitudes, our perceptions, and even our thoughts. But, should our des- but what should our desires, emotions, attitudes, etc. be filled with? In verse 6, the phrase, these words refer to the laws, rules, and statutes that are found in Deuteronomy 6. To 26. That's what that term, these words, mean. It's referencing Deuteronomy 6 to chapter 26. Throughout this sermon series, we've used the, these 20 chapters to understand how the moral law it was to be understood in its Old, Test, Old Covenant context. 
this section of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 to 26, applied the moral law of the Ten Commandments to the particular age and setting of the ancient Israelites under the Old Covenant. Though, they were not, though we are not under the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments and even its commentary in Deuteronomy provides an ethical rule for the life of New Testament Christians. So in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, when we read the words, these words, we should understand this as the Mosaic commentary on the Ten Commandments, the commandments, rules, and statutes of Deuteronomy 6 through 26. This section of Deuteronomy was the content that was to be on Israel's heart, their, their inner thoughts. Not only was the moral law supposed to be known by God, its mosaic exposition was also to be on their hearts as well. But what should this heart filled with the law look like? That brings us to our scripture reading for today, Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, if you would please turn there with me. In Psalm 119, we're going to look at verses 9 through 16 in particular. Verses 9 through 16. I'll read that for you briefly. Psalm 119, 9. How can a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as, all, as, much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So coming back with this in uh, verse 6, in his desire to be pure, which is a term of delight before God, a delightment, a, a, a contentment before God, the psalmist turns to God's word, which is most likely, I would argue, and I don't have time to do that today, is a reference to Deuteronomy. And I would specific, specifically say chapter 6 to 26, that section that we were uh, the Mosaic Commentary. In this section, the psalmist flies into a litany, a litany of joy over the Word of God. In particular, verse 10 connects the idea of law-keeping with our desires to seek after God. Let me repeat that. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So the psalmist stores up the word in his inner being, in his heart, so that he might flee from sin, and this is important, that he might flee from sin and chase after God. From verses 12 to 16, we see the psalmist use different descriptions of God's word and his utter affection for it. He declares God's word. He delights in it. He meditates upon it. And so on and so on and so on. And so seeing how the psalmist here talks of God's word and his affection for it, I believe we should understand the psalmist as an exegete and an example of how we should understand Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. It shall be upon your heart. These words shall be upon your heart. 
the commandments of God should be so rooted into our own hearts, our affections, our thoughts, our desires, that we should be as the psalmist in 119. We should delight in God's words and law with all of our affection and being. But here is a very important question for us, brothers. With all that that said, that we are to love God and his word with all of our being, why does the psalmist love the word in his heart? Why does he love the word? Why does he store it up in his heart? Why does the psalmist delight in the commands, the rules, and the statutes of God? Why does he go on and on with verses and verses describing his great love and delight for law codes? Brothers, I don't know about you, but whenever we get to those clunky laws and codes and rules of the Old Covenant, I don't particularly get all that excited. Amen? Oh, y'all are a bunch of liars. Amen? Amen. Some days it takes some scourging, some scourging, to find some devotional warmth from the law, right? When you get to that section of Deuteronomy, all right, yeah, this is some weird laws about you know, marriage and stuff. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, this makes me happy. No, it, it takes some real hard work, some understanding to understand what's going on. When me and Mary come to our annual reading of Deuteronomy, the, the particular legal sections of chapter 26 to, uh, 6 to 26, we don't have that, that warm devotional glow afterwards. We don't arise in the presence of God. We arise with us scratching our heads sometimes. So why does the psalmist love the word like this if it's so difficult for us? Why does he get to have the warm fuzzies from this passage when it is so difficult for, my, for us? Well, I would like to argue this. The psalmist knew what Moses was doing. He knew he was building off the Ten Commandments. So for both Moses and the psalmist, the law wasn't a dry declaration of God's moral will. Rather, the Ten Commandments were a declaration of God's unique relationship to Israel and her people. At the very outset of the Ten Commandments, God states this. This is very important. Remember, the commentary uh, that Moses is using is a commentary on the Ten Commandments. So let's go to the Ten Commandments. If you want, you can go to Exodus 20, verse 1. At Exodus 20, we read these words. At the very outset of the Ten Commandments, God states this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, it's very easy for us when we read this verse, when we're trying to, when we're trying to understand the moral law codes of the Ten Commandments, it's very easy for us just to breeze past it, to neglect it but is the most important verse to understand why the psalmist loves the law. The single verse, Exodus 20 verse 1, the single verse is vital for understanding why Israel, why the psalmist, and why even the church is to be filled in their inner being with absolute affection for God's law. God's law may be obscure to us, or his teaching may not be immediately clear to us, but that is not the key determining factor for why we should delight in the law. We do not delight in God's law because we find it immediately compelling to our natural sensibilities 
or anything like that. No. We are to delight in God's law. His words are to be on our heart because we are to delight in the lawgiver with all our heart. It doesn't terminate on the law. It terminates on the lawgiver. Brothers, when we read, I am the Lord, your God, we should not hear some formal or dry title to God's law. When we hear, I am the Lord, your God, we should hear the reality that we, that we have him as our God. That beautiful little adjective, your, changes everything for how we approach and understand God's commands, either in Deuteronomy or in the Ten Commandments. So when people, so when God's people approach God's law, we must come to it as those who have a heart enthroned with the majesty of who God is and an utter affection that comes from Him being our God. Our God. Brothers, this enthronement of God in our hearts is ultimately the speaking. Uh, what, what, what we're speaking about is regeneration, right? The doctrine of regeneration is a beautiful truth that we must hold dear. Our God, by his electing, saving purposes, chooses sinners from this dead world that we might be reborn through the power of the Spirit and live in, enlivened to live a life full of holiness for Christ's sakes. He gives us the new birth for the purpose that we would be God-centered in our minds, our wills, and our affections. Through this regenerating work, God enthrones himself in our hearts. That's a good definition for regeneration. God enthroning himself in our hearts. We love and obey God because God has made us his. Remember that regeneration is the first work or the first step in the order of salvation as it's applied to us personally. By God engendering in us new life, by giving us new minds, wills, and affections, we come to cleave to the gospel of Jesus and come to cleave to his kingdom that we once found obscure and rejected. We now know the love. We now know the love of Christ as he is our king. We now know and love to hear that old, old story. We love to hear how God sent his son to die in the place of his enemies, us. We love to hear how God, in his infinite glory and justice, came into this inglorious and unjust world, and how he sent Jesus Christ, the God-man, how he lived a perfect life, a perfect, sinless, holy life, and came to die for unholy rebels against his kingdom, us. We love to hear that Christ was raised from the dead and provides the basis of our justification by faith alone, the example for our sanctification, and the proof that we too will be resurrected in the kingdom of God. We love to hear the story that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's regenerating work allows us to delight in the story of the gospel of King Jesus. No longer is the gospel obscure or obtuse, but everything that we are as man, our mind, our will, and our affections. 
we surrender ourselves and cleave to the saving king enthroned in our heart. Brothers, this is regeneration. God, the Christ man, enthroned in your hearts. Brothers, this is a truth for every single regenerate believer. I would argue that far too often, far too often, our affections can be weak in cleaving to Christ. Far too often our affections are weak to cleaving to Christ. For me personally, I'm not one who has major doubts about the truth of the gospel, at least not anymore. I don't doubt the existence of God or his revelation. That to me, it it would take a megaton for that to be removed from my mind. It's so imbibed in us, right? And though I'm not perfect at this, and that's for sure, you can ask my wife. I have no qualms with what God tells me to do. I'm all for God's ethical standards and how we are to live as Christians. So you could say that I'm fine with my mind and my will taking hold of Christ, but the most dangerous position for me to be in is this. Often, far too often, my affections do not take hold of God. Far too often, my affection and inward delight of God is lacking. So sure, I might believe the right things, and I might do the right things, but I don't feel the right things. This is a problem. And I'm persuaded that it affects all of us in some measure or another. Too often we coast through our Christian lives thinking that if I grow in knowledge of God and in His Word and my piety outwardly, conform, uh, and it's conforming closer to the Bible, then I'm loving God. It's so easy for us to think that our love for God, our love for Christ, can us be merely affirming certain truths and practicing certain things. But that's not all that the Christian life is. Merely affirming and practicing is not loving God with all our hearts. Y'all, I believe Mary Margaret is my wife. Amen? I believe I must practice everything that comes with that. I believe that I am her husband, and I am to love her as defined in our marriage covenant. I believe that. I practice that. But what a pathetic relationship we would have if I merely affirmed and practiced without affection. What kind of relationship is that? A loveless marriage? No affection, a non-affectionate relationship with someone that you are called to love? How sad and dismal is it when people have a relationship where there is no affection for the other? It's disturbing to see couples not to be given over in their hearts to the other. The worst a relationship can get is when we just go through the motions and say certain things when your heart is far off. Brothers, this is true in any relationship. Most importantly so with our God. But why do we get this way? Why do our hearts get so distant and weak from cleaving to Christ? It's because, brothers, I think that y'all can all agree with me, for those who go through this 
time of weak affections. That's because we don't cultivate a healthy relationship with him. I don't want to push this illustration too far, but our relationship with God is much like any other relationship. The scriptures often use human relationships like parents and children, husband and wives, to communicate how we should understand, understand God's relationship with us. If this is the case, what should we take away from it? How do we cultivate relationships with other people? How do we grow more and more in affection with others in our relationships? Well, we do this in really three ways. By getting to be, being with them, growing to understand them more, and good communication, right? Most marriages thrive on that. Most relationships with parents and children thrive on that. Let me repeat that. By being with them, growing to understand them more, and good communication. The more I get to understand my wife, the more I understand her wants in our relationship. The more I spend time with her, the more I come to appreciate and delight in her. The more and more I see the contours of her beautiful personality as I spend time with her. And in, in any relationship, this deepens and matures over time. Brothers, we do this all the times with, uh, with our other relationships. Why do we think that the divine relationship is any different? Yes, we are dealing with a very kind of a relationship, but it is still a relationship. The doctrine of regeneration is glorious to us because it is God personally initiating a relationship with us. But this doctrine does not excuse us. This is clear. This is important. This doctrine of regeneration does not excuse us from personally growing and cultivating the relationship that God has established with us. I mean, I, again, I don't want to push this too far, but, you know, I'm the one who went after Mary. I'm the one who initiated the relationship. I had to. But ultimately, we grew in a fashion for one another because she reciprocated, and she also cultivated our relationship as well. Brothers, ponder this just a moment. And let, let's truly ponder here. God is the fount of all being, glory, goodness, and majesty. That's who he is, right? And his call for our affections is ultimately a call to get to know him personally. That we get to know the God of glory personally. Brothers, if you have tasted the love of God, but if it has been diluted through neglect, remember again what he has done for us and who he is. He has called us to get to know him. Let me repeat that. God, in his regenerating love for us, is a call for, for us to get to know him. Never lose sight of who he is, brothers. To even begin to describe him is unimaginable. So why would we forsake his personal call to know him? God tells us in Deuteronomy 6 to have an affection-filled heart for him. He has called us in verse 6 to have his word on our hearts. 
Through meditation, study, and prayer over the law, the psalmist cultivated a growing affection for his God. And his affection for God was constantly refreshed and deepened. He genuinely communed with his God in this way. And it is for us. It's the same for us. By giving ourselves to cultivating our relationship through God's means of grace, our hearts will develop and grow in affection for him. But we must be given over to him. We must know that he is our God. Brothers, we were not, we were not to be merely satisfied with God. That's not what we're created for as human beings. Image bearers. We were not created to be satisfied with God. We were meant to be enthralled and overjoyed over who He is. Brothers, may we never become satisfied with what we know and feel of God. Just as the psalmist sought God with all his whole heart through His law, may we always come to His text, no matter where we are. Let my heart never be satisfied with knowing enough of you, my God. Brothers, love your God. Love our God with all your heart. Feed your affection for him, and you will arise in the glory and splendor of his majesty. Moving on to our second life-encompassing. We are to have a life-encompassing love for God. In light of this glorious, affection-filled love for God, I hope we can now understand the imagery of the fountain as I take water talking about a fountain. If we have an affection-filled love for God, we will have a life-encompassing love for Him as well. And this is our second point. In our overflowing delight of knowing God at the root of our very being, we are called to love God with all of our soul. Our affections for God and His sufficiency and His overflowing delight in what He brings into our life now overflows into our soul. Now for the modern reader, your soul and heart may sound somewhat similar. What is the difference between our heart and soul? Well, we should understand Moses in light of what he writes in Genesis 2. At the creation of man, Moses writes in Genesis 2, verse 7, these words. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man, catch this, the man became a living creature. What's the word for creature there? It's the Hebrew word, uh, Hebrew word nephesh, meaning soul. In the Hebraic mind, the soul encompassed not only the heart, but also everything outward. Our bodies, our words, our actions, our reactions. To be a nephesh means to be a body-soul creature. It was to be an embodied soul creature. It involved not only inward subjection, uh, subjective affections, but also our behaviors that were objective for the world to see. Um, In theological terms, man is considered whole uh, when we exist in embodied souls. It is the fullness of what uh, what we are meant to be as human beings when we exist in body and soul. 
So from this, we can say that the love for God is to be life-encompassing, soul-encompassing, meaning life-encompassing. It demands not only inward affections, but also outward devotion. We actually see this reality exposited for us in Deuteronomy verses 6, verses 7 and 8. If you would, please turn there with me again. Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 to 8. You shall teach them diligently, the law, these words, the law, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So catch this. Through the outward behaviors and actions of catechizing children, discussing the importance of the word throughout the day, and by taking actions to ensure their remembrance, the Israelite was loving God with his soul. Now, of course, outward actions without inward affections are dead works. Christ makes this clear in his rebuke to the religious leaders in Matthew 23. Uh, if you want for uh, later, uh, verse 37. He calls them whitewashed tombs because they had all this ornamental works around them, but inwardly they were dead. But the converse is true as well. Inward affections without outward actions is antithetical to Christ. Jesus taught this as much in John 8, again with the Pharisees. He actually kind of uh, reverses it on them. In the John 8 passage, Jesus confronts the Pharisees with believing that they had God as their father. They were saying that I have this inward affection for God, but by their objective disdain for Christ, they actually showed that they hated God because they hated his son. You see that they were making this, this point of, oh, I can love the Father. I have love for the Father. I have love for God. But you hate the Son? Objectively so? And you disdain Him? I mean, you're about to kill Him in a few chapters. I don't know if you have love for the Father. So then, true devotion and love for God was to be characterized by both inward affections and outward actions. You cannot have one without the other. One may be weaker in some respects and must be repented of, but if either is altogether non-existent, it is no true devotion to God. We are body and soul creatures. We must love both inwardly and outwardly with all that we are. And so, brothers, if this is the case, that inward and outward love must characterize the Christian, why is it that so many so-called Christians reject the first four commandments? The first four commandments outline for us what love for God looks like in objective terms. Yet so many Christians are in the habit of regularly disregarding and outright breaking them. Here's what I'm talking about. And I should be Christians in, in quotation marks. Have you ever heard of a professing person call themselves spiritual but not religious? Ugh. You know what I'm talking about. This is the religious mantra of my generation. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. In our context, uh, it, it's assumed in saying that if one can be spiritual, that they can have a particular affection for the Christian faith or God, but they don't have to be dominated by uh, religious practices or dogma that the faith is associated with. It's religion. So by them saying that I can have this inward affection for, for God, I can have this inward affection for Jesus, I can be all cool with Jesus, 
but actively disdain him and hold things contrary to him, they run into a problem. By believing this, they are trying to justify idolatrous sins. In regards to the first commandment, uh, I went to MSU, I got a degree in philosophy and religious studies, and you meet some interesting people in that field of study, especially at Mississippi State. Uh, I've heard professing Christians say that Jews and Muslims can worship the true God, our God, but just with their particular beliefs and practices from the rabbinic teachings or the Quran. Said that boldly. Simply put, you, you could worship Allah or deny Christ while at the same time worshiping Yahweh. Brothers, I wish that this statement was said out of ignorance. But again, this was a professing classmate of mine while he was an undergrad in religious studies. To this day, it astounds me that such a profoundly contradictory statement was allowed to be said in a public institution. To this day, it just simply astounds me. But the same is true for the second and third commandments. As we saw earlier this year, the second commandment deals with the true, proper worship of God as He has revealed in His Scripture. We are to worship the way our God wants to be worshipped. This is typically where the spiritual, not religious folk, deny the sufficiency of Scriptures. They deny the sufficiency of God's revelation. For example, the majority of modern Christian churches, Sunday services look more and more like the Greek Parthenon than biblical worship. With an overtly man-centered worship, these churches do everything in their power to move people's emotions to build up some kind of spiritual fervor. Everything revolves around the felt experiences of the worshipers rather than the true spiritual love and obedience to God's word and worship. Now, guys, I know that in my appreciation, I don't get to all your felt experience. Some of y'all might be a little bit sleepy. Some of you might be a little bit bored. Repent. Some of y'all might think that this is not all that necessary. You know, we're Christians. We, can, we, we know all about this. Repent. This is biblical worship. Preaching is always characteristic of the New Testament church. Preaching the word, understanding and explaining it. So when we come in here and we say, okay, I just, all right, let's get this over with. Repent. The plain truth is that the only experience that these worshipers, if we have this same tendency among us, that we like to be spiritual, not religious, if we have this, the plain truth is, is that the only experience these worshipers feel is their own pride, patting themselves on their backs as they neglect God's explicit commands to worship in the way He has revealed. It's the same with the third commandment. As we saw, the third commandment is about complete allegiance to Yahweh, an unwavering devotion to who He is and what He has revealed. Our inward affection should should and must drive us to passionate, heartfelt allegiance. But inward allegiance must cultivate an outward allegiance. If we are truly passionate about the things of God, it must be communicated in outward realities. Even in my short years, I have met too many men who say that they love God, but there is absolutely no evidence of it. And when challenged on it, challenged lovingly on it, they go on and on about how much they give to charity, how they vote, or how they're not hypocritical or judgmental. 
which is often a veiled accusation to flee from any loving criticism. A life encompassing love for God will love God's commandments. Simple. The life, this kind of life encompassing love will do everything at its disposal to know God, understand what He desires. That's, that's what having affection for Him is all about. That we have such an affection for Him, that we love Him, that extends into outer reaches of our soul, that we actually know and want to desire what He desires. We want to know God as He wants Himself to be revealed as. We want to know Christ as He has revealed in His Word. We want to worship Christ, the, the lover of our soul, and we want to love Him back. Brothers, for people who neglect these commandments, these are, not, these are not outward signs of a heartfelt life encompassing love for God. A life encompassing love for God will love God's commandments. You will seek to know God, desire what He desires, and practice it. Just as a faithful Israelite was to bend his entire life around the knowledge of who God is and His will for them, we are to do the same. Brothers, Jesus puts it very clearly in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. Now, oftentimes preachers say that just to, you know, wake you up and things like that. That's an old pastoral trick. It's really good. It wakes you up. But when I'm telling you to turn to your Bibles, we need to read explicitly what God's Word says in clear print. Because we need to be reminded of these things. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. This is a passage that is very familiar to us because we need to be regularly reminded that we have a responsibility to love God in real, tangible ways and not with just what we think. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In this passage, we see Jesus explicitly denouncing people who thought that they were worshiping Christ. That's a really scary mentality. People who thought they were worshiping Christ and they're the ones being denounced. And and they are just like false believers today. They try to justify that they are actual Christians by giving a list of good deeds and virtues. We prophesy in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We do good works in your name. We give to charity. We vote conservative. We're not judgmental. No, brothers, so many men and women are on the path to everlasting damnation where they will hear these words of Jesus. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not that these men's, virt- uh, men's works weren't virtuous or right practices. But what Jesus was trying to communicate to us here is that a life that is not encompassed by the love and obedience to God's whole will is not a life of love for God. But brothers, 
the lists that they give are biblical practices during the time of the early church. Prophesying, casting out demons, performing mighty works were signs of the activity of the Spirit. We could say that their words are arguably greater than our own. But a person can have one aspect of their life that is given over to the Lord and it can be used mightily by Him. God can use that like a miraculous gift, like mighty works, but it is still only one aspect of their life. Brothers, our Lord demands all our life. Sure, you can volunteer for vacation Bible school. You can drive a van to camp. You can feed the homeless and the poor. But if His will, His law does not encompass all your life with true affection, then you will meet Jesus on the final days. I never knew you. Brothers, it is easy to see how false professing men and women fail to understand and apply this truth. But just because we see the worst of humanity in their example, this does not excuse us from evaluating our own lives. Where do we fail to love God with our whole lives in real objective ways? I don't want to beat a dead horse, but think of the first four commandments as they relate to loving God. Most of us here this morning won't deny that the object of worship, uh, who is the object of worship? God, the first. Or that God should be worshipped as He is revealed, the second. No one denies that we, have an, that we should have an allegiance to God above all things, the third. But think of the fourth commandment. Brothers, we, we have a unique position on the Sabbath. But if you take any faithful pastor from any denomination, a Bible-believing denomination, and you, you bring them in here, they would affirm over and over again the centrality of God's worship with the saints on this day. It is a central and vital component of Christian faith and practice. Of all the first four commandments, the gathered worship of God acts as a litmus test for whether one actually practices the first three. Let me say that again. The gathered worship of God, the fourth commandment, acts as a litmus test for whether one actually practices the first three. The first three commandments can be easier to hide behind because they are more internal to some degree. But the fourth commandment demands an objective response, not subjective feelings. The Lord's Day's worship requires us to show up. It requires participation in worship. It requires outward action. Sure, men and women have hidden behind the label as churchgoer to excuse them from examination, but how one genuinely speaks of and participates in the worship of God solidifies his claims to Christ and to his new birth. When a man or woman gives his or her life to be encompassed by the worship of God, it shows, simply put. It's tangible. Whether it's forsaking our desire to lay in bed on Sunday morning, we all have had it or diminishing distractions during service. When a man of God or a woman of God gives himself to the body of Christ to praise his God's name, it shows. It's tangible. It's evident. It's real. And this kind of worship throughout the week also evidences a man's claim to Christ. When a redeemed man is given over to the things of God, it shows in all aspects of his life. Worship is a supernatural, spirit-wrought disposition of God's redeemed people. 
Our lives from Sunday to Sunday should be marked by the tangible means of grace. Our lives should exemplify an evident, growing holiness in the Spirit. From Sunday to Sunday, we are to see worship penetrate our days, our moments. It is only through a genuine indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we can be confident that we have the love of God and that we love God. And brothers, the fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5, I don't care how you parse it, I don't care how you look at it, it's tangible, it's objective, it's real. So then, brothers, is your love for God life-encompassing? Are, you, are your days filled with the tangible activity of the Spirit? Do you center your entire lives and activities around the praise of God's name? Then you do well. But if you see that you lack in certain areas of your life, if you see that there is a domain of your life not fully, wholly sanctified over to God's law and will, if you have quenched the Spirit in some area of your life, then repent. Repent and know if you wholeheartedly turn from your sins and turn to Christ, you will be forgiven. But be refreshed by the Spirit and the delight of the good news that Jesus can forgive and save you from your apathy and negligence. To turn to Him in affection-filled, life-encompassing worship is what we're meant for. Repentance here is not a hard thing. Repentance here, when we repent to know the living God, we are actually repenting to have life, where we get to see life incarnate before us in Christ Jesus, where we get to see the glory of God revealed to us. That's the repentance that we're talking about. Brothers, come and know this life. As Paul so wonderfully put it in these gospel realities, as he talks about these gospel realities, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies, your nefesh, it's not the word there, but it is, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christ saved us for the reason that we might be filled with the Spirit to praise Him. So then, love Him with all your soul and with all your life, because your life, if you are in Christ, belongs to Him. Brothers, I know that I'm pressing on time here, but the third one's quick. Moving on to our final point. Our love for God should be affection-filled, life-encompassing, and community-impacting. Affection-filled, life-encompassing, and community-impacting. In Deuteronomy 6, we are called to love God with all our might. The word might there is fairly interesting in the Hebrew. Typically, it's translated as the adverb, very. So we are to love God with our veriness. The Greek translation is power, um, where we probably get strength later on. Uh, we'll talk about that some tonight. But the Aramaic is translated wealth. One scholar suggests that this ambiguity of the term leads us to see man as more than just an embodied spirit. Our variness or our might should be understood as not merely who we are, but what we have at our disposal. If our heart and soul captures the idea of our affections and our objective lives, then all our might, that phrase all our might, illustrates 
all that we are to have under our sway and control is to be given to Christ. Our spouse, our children, our homes, our time, our tools and resources should be used to show our love for God. We see this in Deuteronomy verses 7 and 8, Deuteronomy 6, 7 and 8. Israel was to love God by teaching their children the law and the lawgiver. But in verse 9, the idea of loving God with all their might is illustrated here. Verse 9, you shall write them the law on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The doorposts and the gates were very public in ancient Israel. And the act of writing the commands and law of God on them were to act as a reminder as people go about their day. Israel was to love God in the midst of their daily public lives. And as they traveled and interacted with other Israelites, love for God was to be on the forefront of the minds of the people. Pastor Wynn makes a lot of references to the movie The Fiddler on the Roof. I think that's your favorite movie, is that correct? One of them, well, I'm pretty sure it's your favorite because you reference it a lot. To be honest, I had never seen it until this week. Um, you can cast stones later. But now I see why it is your favorite movie. Um, in, in the film, you see the traditional mezuzah at the entrance of Tevye's house. The mezuzah was a little decorative door piece that contained our scripture text this morning, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. And during the second temple period, the Ten Commandments were put up as decorative pieces in the city gates and the major public areas throughout Israel. So for the Israelites, both during the biblical era and after, there, are, there was a very public affirmation of the love for God. It was a public affirmation. And what is the point of our love being made public? That, that's what I'm trying to get at. What's the point of love for God being made public? What does it mean to love God publicly? Ultimately, to, be, to, to love God publicly in front of others. Public means to be in front of others. This love is to be so evident that others feel the effects for example, the fourth commandment directly connects our love of God to the public domain of our lives. Have you ever caught that before? In the fourth commandment, we are exhorted to refrain from employing others on this day. And in doing so, our love for God and his worship, the believers publicly announce his love for God by blessing others by giving them a day off. So even the sojourner in the gate was to rest on God's appointed day of worship. And so when we are faithful to God's worship and praise, the public, that is the other image bearers, whether believer or not, they feel the real tangible effects of it. So it is with the other first commandments. When we are faithful to proclaim that our God is the one true God, when we proclaim that he loves his worship, when we proclaim that God demands absolute allegiance from image bearers, then we are being a blessing to others in our public domain of life. It's because we're preaching the gospel. That's all loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might is in the Christian context. Preach the gospel so that it has a public, a public effect on others. When we are faithful not to hide our lamp, uh, our light under a lamp, the blessing and love of God extends outward beyond ourselves to other image bearers. By loving God with all of our might, the love of other image bearers may be ignited in the love of God as well. 
by our love for God in this way, by proclaiming the Gospels, communities are impacted by the Gospel, and the glorious fame of our God is extended into new territory. No longer is it extended into my heart. No longer is He going to be enthroned in my heart. His throne extends to every image bearer that He calls, and His glory will be made known. Amen. With all of our being, even with the resources at our disposals, our communities, this community here, are to know that our King is Yahweh and our Lord is Christ. How wonderful it is that, that I can love a fallen, sinful, and frustrating fellow human image bearers. Not because I merely love them in and of themselves. That's key, and we're going to talk about this some tonight. I don't love image bearers in and of themselves just for themselves, but I love them because I know the love of God. How wonderful it is that my frustration with my neighbor can be triumphed by the love of God by preaching the gospel to him. We'll see more of this tonight, so I encourage you to be back if you can or listen on later. Brothers, I'm going to extend this point later on into this evening, so I'm going to end in a conclusion. Brothers, our love for God is to be characterized as affection-filled, life-encompassing, community-impacting. There is no higher calling in life. There is no deeper joy. There is no blessed state that can, that can compare to reality that we are loved by God in Christ and that He has called us to Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all our might. Brothers, love for God, this, this commandment, if you have truly been born from above, these commandments, this commandment, is not burdensome. It is our delight. Lord, pon, uh, friends, ponder upon the commandments of God. Don't come to them as a dry book or a list of commands. Come to them knowing, my God has given me a mission to do. Let's be faithful to that mission. May we hear that call today. Let us pray.